Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 139. On today's show, we talk to Dr. Randy Daniel about his research on updating and refining North Carolina point typologies. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everyone. Rachel, how's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. So we, ever, long-time listeners to the show, know that we may have taken uh, a couple weeks off because <laughs> everybody needs a vacation. So we actually took like a legit vacation and just didn't do we anything. Did. So we are back, yes. though. And yeah. and people that are following our travels, too, we're actually recording this from about 600 feet from the Pacific Ocean in Central California, which is pretty neat. And in like... A month and a half, we'll be on the other coast, not quite so close, but we'll be in North Carolina, where Rachel's family is from, like we did last year, and that is where our guest is from. So, Dr. Randy Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and uh, welcome back to North Carolina in another month or so. Right? <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to get back and see the family. <laughs> so, we were contacted uh, about a couple months ago, probably, by your publisher, University of Alabama Press. And you have produced a book this year called Time, Typology, and Point Traditions in North Carolina Archaeology. Now, first off, they sent us a, a PDF of the book so we could just review it for this podcast. But is that out and available right now? Yes, it's it uh, was okay. published in um, February. So it is out. You just uh, just Google the University of Alabama Press and uh, mm -hmm. you can order it online. I, I think it's also available in, online at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and fine bookstores everywhere. Right. 
Okay, sounds good. And we'll we'll include a link to this in the show notes. So anybody listening to this, just open up your podcast player. There should be a link to the book right there. So, well, let's start out talking about this. So, you know, our audience, not everybody might be archaeologists. So one of the big things we're talking about here is typology and point traditions as terminologies. So let's just lay the groundwork before we really get into why you wrote this. What does typology mean in the context of projectile points and and stone tools? The archaeological record, of course, is made up of artifacts of, of various raw materials and various types. Uh, my book deals particularly with stone artifacts, in particular stone, what's called projectile points. Think of spear points or arrow points, which are fairly common in the archaeological record, uh, and they prove useful for telling time as well. Particular point styles are associated with various uh, time intervals throughout the prehistory of of, uh, North Carolina and eastern North America. And so archaeologists have used these to great value in providing dates or relative dates for artifacts found uh, in the various sites that they might excavate. Okay. That is a good starting definition. So I have, uh, didn't read this entire book in this amount of time, but I've definitely um, skimmed through it, read some of the summaries, and I'm actually familiar with a book that this was, I don't know if based on is the right word, but at least updating. And that is Co-COE's The Formative Cultures of, of the Carolina Piedmont. And that has obviously been one of the, the seminal books for point typologies for what, like the last 50 years in the, in the Carolinas? Exactly. Yes. Cove's book uh, was landmark publication and then and published in 1964 that um, for the first time made sense of a, a, what he called a series, a hodgepodge of uh, projectile point types. And so there's a, mm-hmm. a variety of, of, of projectile points that have a various shapes. They're all sort of triangular shaped on their um, working end, but the base could be stemmed, it could be eared, it could be notched. And what um, he demonstrated in Formas Cultures was that those different uh, types, those very, very various shapes could help uh, archaeologists classify their artifact types in time. And so, you know, the type is a basic unit of archaeological classification. And this then allowed archaeologists for the first time to make sense of the, uh, the some of those artifacts they had found in the archaeological record. Hmm. Yeah, because when he wrote that, I mean, using grouping points by, you know, form basically in construction was not really in great wide practice, was it? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Archaeologists was aware of that variability they saw in, in the artifact forms, but they didn't know what it meant. They, yeah. They, yeah. they didn't have a good handle on what it meant. And so Coe uh, excavated three sites uh, along the Yadkin uh, and the Roanoke River. And uh, in those sites, those sites were stratified, sort of a layer cake. Think of a layer cake and where the layer at the bottom of the cake is the oldest and the layer at the top mm-hmm. is the youngest. And within each of those layers, there, there were particular point styles. And what he found was that various layers or levels predominantly had one type of, um, of projectile point form associated with it. And so by stringing these, uh, these three sites together and looking at the stratigraphy, he built a composite sequence that essentially encompassed much of the prehistory of North Carolina. Nice. All right. Well, 
if he did all that work, then why'd you write this book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Why did I do that? So, yes, his was foundational. It laid the groundwork. But uh, some 50 years later, archaeologists have come to find that not all of the types that he recorded, not all that we have found additional point types that uh, were not present in his sequence. And mm -hmm. also we know now that that sequence can be refined. Uh, we have now the, uh, excavated some other sites. We've actually got some absolute dates via radiocarbon huh. and other methods that uh, can put absolute dates associated with those point types, whereas he sort of provided the relative sequence, just sort of older and younger. He only had a, just a few dates, a handful of dates that he could, back in the 1960s, that he could actually assign just a few points to. And then he made some pretty good estimates about uh, other, other absolute dates. But in the last 50 years, we've, got, we've had many, many more dates. And we've found that some of the variation was not totally accounted for in his typology. So mm. what I did was kind of uh, build on that and help uh, what I hope is kind of refine that sequence in a way that kind of makes it, um, brings it up to date, at least in the 21st century. Yeah, that's interesting. It's really, it's really interesting because, you know, back in 1964, when this was published, presumably he was writing it for several years beforehand. I mean, you can't directly date this kind of stone, at least back not back in 1964, and most stone you can't date it now anyway. But at least you can't date when it was made. Uh, you might get a date on it that's four billion years old, but <laughs> that's yeah. not accurate. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so exactly, and even, exactly. And even radiocarbon dating for some of the stuff around it was only invented about 20 years before that, and Correct. not in wide use for archaeologists anyway. So, as I said, 50 years, several decades later, now we've got additional data that um, provides that allows us to. Uh, better date, uh, put some more, uh, refine the dates of some of the points, and then also date some of the new point types that um, mm -hmm. that uh, I talk about in my book. Yeah, yeah, that's super interesting because I I went to school at UNC Chapel Hill as well. I, I just did my undergrad there, and so of course I'm I encountered Coe's book in classes and such. And I also worked with the research laboratory there. So I definitely encountered that book and the typologies in that book multiple times over my years there as a student. But I had no idea that it was based on three sites. Were they large sites? Did they have large typology <laughs> collections or... Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, two of the sites, the Hardaway site and Dorsherd site uh, along the uh, Yadkin River, were actually shown to Co. by Herbert Dorshick, the namesake of one of the sites. He's a, a, mm -hmm. an amateur archaeologist in the region. So he brought a, a lot of artifacts to Co. Uh, Co looked at them and generated a lot of interest, and then he subsequently did the excavations there. And as I mentioned, the significance of these sites is that they had some stratigraphy to them. And that stratigraphy then, uh, of course, uh, tells time. And that was uh, a key for Coe that um, helped him put particular point styles in that chronological sequence that is now sort of famous uh, across the eastern part of North America. Mm -hmm. I'm 
curious about the title uh, while we're kind of setting the stage for this book, because, uh, you know, Coe's book was Formative Cultures of the Carolina Piedmont. And uh, anybody who's worked out there knows anything about there's the Piedmont, you know, extends across a few states. And your book actually has North Carolina in the title. So did you tighten that up a little bit or had Coe done that and his title was just a little too flexible? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, no, uh, you know, the subtitle to my uh, book is Formative Cultures Reconsidered. So mm-hmm. I, I kind of hook, uh, hook, hooked that in there. So <laughs> I, my, uh, uh, the points I looked at were all North Carolina points, but what Coe found, and I think it is still true today, that, that, typo- that his was kind of the first typology that, again, uh, assigned um, the, a typology associated with a chronology. And so mm-hmm. contemporary state boundaries are not, you know, didn't exist thousands of years ago. So <laughs> right. the, some similar shapes that you find in North Carolina point types are found in South Carolina and Virginia. Uh, the Savannah River point type, for example, is found all up and down the uh, eastern part of, uh, of North America. And so some of these types have very wide uh, spread reaches. And so um, that was kind of the utility. While it was specifically generated in North Carolina, it had significance and implications for other point types all across uh, the eastern part of the North America. Mm-hmm. Well, just speaking across across the country, Rachel and I have worked in something like 15, 16, 17 different states in this country. And we've done a lot of work in the past decade or so in like Nevada and uh, California. And just looking through your book and, and seeing some of the pictures in that one chapter where you really go through some of the types, I mean, I'm, I'm recognizing, of course, we worked back there, so I may have recognized some stuff from when we were back in that area, but I recognize some as like looking like some Nevada points. You know, we get really tight with our regional and even state chronologies, but in reality, I, I feel like projectile points are a lot like cars, right? Like every car might be different, but they all have four wheels and a steering wheel. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> right, from that standpoint, right. there's not a lot of variability in function. Uh, but when it comes to shape, there's like micro differences in shape that you can track regionally. So that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. And I mean, all this relates to the fact that, you know, there's only so many ways to make a stone point, right? And so, <laughs> right. Um, we, you know, technological convergence. It's just that um, if you're flaking a piece of stone to have a pointy end and you're then trying to attach the basal end to a shaft, uh, again, yeah. there's only so many ways to do that. And so, and, and this is recognized by archaeologists based upon the horizon style assumption that a a side notch point with ears may be called a Hardaway side knot point in North Carolina, but there's a somewhat similar side notch point down in Florida that's called a Bolin point. And so it appears to be the case that in these side notch points with a little bit of variation all date to roughly, roughly the same time period in North Carolina to Florida, right? And mm-hmm. so um, the, that again, that's part of the utility of what Coe's um, initial typology did was set some certain parameters that archaeologists going looking for these side notch eared points that are common in, in other uh, states. And so that if the Hardaway side notch point is an early archaic point in North Carolina, uh, a bowling point in with a little side notches are is likely roughly equivalent in age to that in North Carolina. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Okay. Well, 
I want to jump into a few things that might take a little longer than this segment has left. So let's go ahead and take our first break and we'll continue this discussion on the other side. Back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code TAS. Hey podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code... T-A-S at liquidiv.com. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 139, and we are interviewing Dr. Randy Daniel about his book, Time, Typology, and Point Traditions in North Carolina Archaeology, produced this year in 2021, or published, I should say, this year in 2021. We produce podcasts. We publish books. I got to remember that. Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) one... Uh, one thing that you mentioned in the book, uh, and I've got a quote here, you said, uh, and this is talking about the the actual stone that a lot of these points are made out of. I'm still kind of setting the stage for people that obviously may not have either worked there or are familiar with this. So you said in no other state in the Southeast is metavolcanic and metasedimentary stone used uh, prehistorically to the degree that it is found in North Carolina. I'm just wondering if you just archaeologically speaking can shed some light on why that might be. Sure. Well, this is, this relates to the region's geology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so North Carolina is unique in that the Piedmont region has a series of meta, it's a metamorphosed volcanic rock and metamorphosed sedimentary rock that is kind of the, has been the primary stone that was used for millennia by its native inhabitants. This contrasts, for example, with other areas around the Southeast, which chert, it's more, chert is more sedimentary rock. And so you get um, the Allendale Church in South Carolina, you get the Ridge mm-hmm. and Valley Church in Tennessee, uh, and in Virginia, you get the Flint Run Jaspers. And so North Carolina is kind of in the midst of all that, we're surrounded by chirts. There's virtually no chert in North Carolina, none that's mm-hmm. in enough quantities that that is is nappable. And so, you look in any artifact collection from any collector or any uh, collection of North Carolina, and you'll see this dark gray to grayish green stone, and it's totally different than the earth tone colors, the tans and reds and bluish black, very uh, glossy looking stone that's the church. So mm-hmm. it's very, it's it, it, and at a big scale, it's very distinctive. So geologically, this stone, uh, as I said, is primarily occurs in sort of the Piedmont region of North Carolina. And because of the 
unique circumstances under which North Carolina formed, these outcrops of generically, it's most often referred to as rhyolite. And so Mm -hmm. it's got the interesting properties that make it useful for a stone. And of course, Mm -hmm. all, you know, if you go make a stone tool, if you're going to kill an animal, butcher a deal, chop down a tree, you need uh, a material that's hard. Well, you know, most all stone is hard, but what Mm -hmm. separates useful stone, uh, if it's going to be flaked from, uh, less useful stone is a property geologists refer to as conchoidal fracture. And all that means is, is if you know where to hit a stone and at what angle to hit a stone, you can remove flakes of stone that results in, you know, the end product, that pointed rock. And so I use the analogy of like whittling a piece of wood. Somebody wants to take a little block of wood and whittle a little figurine out of it. Right. And so they'll Mm -hmm. take the knife and just, shave pieces of wood away until it comes out to the final form. Well, that that's sort of analogous to the process of, of flaking a stone tool, except you're not shaving it. You're taking another rock or a, or a, uh, some kind of hammer, like a, an antler piece of antler and just mm-hmm. literally banging it. But you know, that there's a, a, a high degree of skill uh, that, that is required in order to, to make a finely flaked object. But the point is, is that this rhyolite, this metamorphosed volcanic stone is both hard and it has the conchoidal fracture. And if you know, if you know what you're doing, you can make a, a variety of stone artifacts from that material. Yeah, I remember that rhyolite out there uh, and, and finding a bunch of that. <laughs> it's mostly obsidian yeah, and churn yeah. out here in the West. Kristen, you find yeah. a whole bunch when we were working on that project in Wilmington. Wasn't it mostly rhyolite there? Yeah, I think it was. Uh, this would probably interest you, Randy. I found a, we were working off the Cape Fear River on a big CRM project and we were doing a, a full scale uh, block excavation after a bunch of shovel testing. And uh, I was just telling somebody about this the other day. I found basically a rhyolite uh, point cache. It was, they were mostly preforms too. Like they, they had taken huh. some flakes around the edge and they were mostly probably rounders. Some of them were having a kind of a leaf shape to them, but they were mostly unformed. And it looks like they were in some kind of a pouch. There was about I don't know, probably eight to 10 of them just stacked up like books and the pouch was gone, of course, because that soil just completely ate it up. Right. All you, all you had left was this like little cache of preform rhyolite, which was pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, Those are, that's pretty rare. That's a very rare yeah. to find that. Hmm. So yeah. uh, you couldn't date that by any chance. Is there anything associated with it that give you a sense of the age? Well, as you know, with uh, I'm sure I some of the remember. ceramics we found, we found tens of thousands of ceramics. Yeah, um, and maybe some other stuff. There were some hearth features nearby. As with any CRM project, we didn't get the final report on this thing. You know, we were there to excavate and dig, and then moved on to the next thing. So, right. um, I'd have you. to, mm-hmm. yeah, right. I'd have to contact the company and or, or look at the report to see if they actually were able to date that because that would be interesting. Sure, because I don't think, yeah, I, you know, talking about typologies and and point traditions. I don't remember if there was actually any formed points in there. I don't think there were. So we wouldn't have been able to, to really place it in time based on that. Um, right. It was just, right. Yeah, well, just by stratigraphy and 
you might have been able to place it in time with stratigraphy and then the surrounding artifacts sure. because we had we had some really good stratified soil and features and stuff on that site. So they they might have been mm-hmm. they might have been able to date it. But like Chris said, yeah. we were we were long gone on to the next project by the time they got to that phase. So <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Well, um, let's talk a little bit more about. You know, this is obviously a book that's a comparison with the um, Formative Cultures book. So let's talk a little bit about what you added to this that was not in Formative Cultures. I think you kind of mentioned a little bit in the first segment, but I'm curious just from an archaeological standpoint, um, because you mentioned in the book that you did add some, obviously add some point types to this book, but were they point types that were lumped into stuff we already knew about in 1964, or were they actually new things that were discovered between, you know, the time you wrote this book and uh, and when co-wrote his book? Uh, There were some new point types that I introduced that um, uh, were, I'll say, best uh, unrecognized, right, Mm -hmm. in uh, in the typology. So, for example, the Clovis points, you know, the fluted Mm -hmm. points, those were not initially identified in uh, formative cultures. The earliest point type Coe talks about are the Hardaway Daltons. He had them. A, a Hardaway blade that he uh, identified, but he never um, he, he never uh, recognized or acknowledged the presence of fluted points. Now, fluted points are in North Carolina, um, but uh, and so I added fluted point Clovis being the earliest recognizable point type really across North America. I mean, pre-Clovis there are, you know, notwithstanding, but there's yet to be identified a pre-Clovis projectile point type in the way that Clovis is a hallmark for the sure. uh, Paleo-Indian period. So I talk about a Clovis point and then a subsequent point type that follows on the heels of Clovis, what's called a redstone point. Um, uh, and it's, it's, it's also fluted, but it's um, slightly different blade shape. The, 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 the fluting's longer. The base tends to be more indented than on a Clovis point. So uh, those are all types now that have been recognized uh, that were not initially identified in the sequence. And so those kind of place the uh, starting point of the sequence, give it its uh, foundation, and then move on to some other point types that, for example, the the MAC point, that MAC point, it was unrecognized. And this is a point that I picked up on from South Carolina Mm. archaeologists who talk about this it's a very large point. It, some of these are as large as the s- size of your hand. They look like they, they look like large Morrow Mountain points. I'm, I'm, if, if, if you happen to know what a Morrow Mountain point looks like, it looks like a Morrow mm-hmm. Mountain point on steroids. It has a very large stem, very large blade. And in fact, it's so large that you wonder what its utility was. It, 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 it's unlikely that it, it certainly wasn't an arrow point. Uh, it might have been hafted on a on the end of a spear, but it's also been conjectured as part of some exchange it may be, you know, I hate to use the word ceremonial and, you know, uh, <laughs> ceremonial, of course, is the, is the word that we use when archaeologists can't explain what the function of an <laughs> artifact is, you know. Yep. So, uh, yet, uh, yeah, yeah. But the interesting thing is some of my colleagues in South Carolina find these MAC points. The interesting thing is they're made from this flow banded rhyolite that's if almost certainly comes from the Uari Mountains of North Carolina. So why, mm-hmm. why and how does that that 
point made of that material get down along the Santee River area, for example, or maybe even a little south of the Santee. So it's interesting to think about that is is involved in some widespread exchange network. Mm. And so those are just examples of a a few of the point types that I added that weren't um, originally part of the of the co-sequence. Speaking of that, I guess, how was the sequence updated? That's a really big question. I know that we should probably read the book. Uh, yeah, the listeners should probably read the book if they want to know. But what are some, I guess, major highlights you can think of that were um, really changed as far as point typology sequences in North Carolina and the Carolina Peapunt with your research? Sure. Uh, well, what I did was I looked at um, not only the Piedmont, but I looked at the coastal plain and the mountains. The three major physiographic mm-hmm. regions in North Carolina are the coastal plain, uh, bordering obviously the Atlantic coast, then the Piedmont, mm-hmm. and then the mountain regions, the, um, uh, the southern Appalachians. Coe's uh, book, of course, was primarily based upon formative cultures of the Carolina Piedmont. So sure. what I did was um, uh, add, based upon Upon using some, uh, there's been some work done in the in the uh, mountain regions post co. You know, Benny Keel, Roy Dickens did some work. Then I, I incorporated some of their work, and then in the coastal plain. East Carolina is right here in the coastal plain. So some of the sites I've been digging along the Tar River. And so I um, I constructed this larger kind of statewide sequence, making comparisons and contrast with some of the point types from uh, the various regions. Um, I also updated it um, by, uh, as I meant, meant, we talked about earlier, absolute dates, and which was primarily lacking in Coe's time, simply because radiocarbon data, as you mentioned, was uh, barely born at that point. And so in the mm-hmm. last 50 years, we have a lot more uh, radiocarbon dates and OSL, optically stimulated luminescent dates, uh, that, have, that have allowed us to get a better handle on some of the intervals in which these projectile points, uh, the in- time intervals in which these pe- projectile points are associated with. So I uh, attempted to, to look through the literature and compile these dates and um, slightly revise some of the dates in some instances and put uh, finer brackets on uh, dates of other points. I, I think it becomes a, a, a little bit more useful dating tool for archaeologists uh, along those lines. Well, I think that is another good point to take a break because I want to come back on the final segment and wrap this up and and find out what it all means. So we'll do that on the other side of the break. Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 139, and we are wrapping up this discussion with Dr. Randy Daniel uh, about his most recent book. Check it out in the show notes if you want to go pick up a copy. So one of the things that you talk about in here that I need a little explanation on because I didn't really dive into the chapters in which you were talking about this, but you mentioned, I believe it was 
co that use these point traditions and typologies to uh, produce and, and others after him actually have used this to produce like a culture history of prehistoric peoples. Whereas you talk more about communities of practice, which is not a phrase that I'm familiar with. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, th- this is a communities of practice is um, a framework that I use to look at the, the issue of ethnicity, for the lack of a better term, in um, sure. in typology. So this gets to the issue of what do these typologies represent? Well, we've talked about they represent chronology. They represent function. Projectile points are used as projectiles to pierce and cut. And so, and they can be used to tell time. But I, I think they're also telling us something about the, the ethnicity, the social identity of groups themselves. Oftentimes, there's this archaeological trope that points are not people. Um, and <laughs> But I kind of think at some level they are. And this reflects mm-hmm. something of the uneasy relationship that archaeology has in anthropology with respects to, to, to people. You know, as archaeologists, we deal with material record. We deal with archaeological remains. And so we get hung up on all these cool-looking artifacts. And I'm as guilty as, as that of the next one. There's nothing sure. cooler than a fluted point, right? And I'll get a look yeah. at it. But sometimes we lose sight that these were made by people. So it's really the people we're interested in, not the artifacts. It's what the archaeological record tells us about the past. And so the artifacts are a means to an end. So this communities of practice and point traditions is um, a framework that I've, communities of practice is borrowed from ethnography. I, maybe maybe I uh, abused it. I hope not. But um, <laughs> it's a perspective that, that looks at telling us uh, about uh, people and that uh, in contrast to Co, here's another distinction. Co, the Co axiom was that at any one point, at any say interval in time, you should only find one kind of projectile point. Well, I. I I don't think that's exactly true all across the state. I think a state. I think we're we're finding places where you find contemporaneous point types, uh, slightly different point types, but they're at the roughly same interval of time. Now, why why does mm-hmm. that happen? You know, so I think there's something about different practices of making projectile points that reflect um, different. Uh, again, ethnicities, societies, norms, um, sure. uh, whatever you want to uh, refer to it. And so I think that looking at these as um, as these points as representing some kind of prehistoric community is an important way to look at, to get back to understanding the people. We don't, Again, we don't want to lose sight of the people here. We don't want to get hung up too much on the points, but think about people. You know, that is such a great point because uh, it might be because it's dinner time here and I haven't eaten since like noon today, but uh, let's talk about barbecue, right? Like there's barbecue <laughs> yeah. all over the country, but Carolina barbecue is a lot different than St. Louis barbecue. <laughs> right. It's, it's even barbecue. different than South Carolina barbecue, right? It's, right. Uh, yeah. Right. 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 Exactly. Exactly. I'm not casting aspersions on my South Carolina colleagues, but you know, <laughs> vinegar based is where it's at. All right. Uh, that's all Got I'm saying. Agree. Totally agree. Nice. Nice. Yeah. Now, see, I grew up in the West, so barbecue is anything you throw on a grill. It has nothing to do with like pulled pork. So Rachel and I disagree with that all the (laughs) time. (laughs) Oh, my God. So many arguments about what barbecue means. But (laughs) we don't don't need to talk about that. (laughs) It's really interesting to 
make everybody like bring back into focus the fact that a productive point is just a thing that is part of a culture, but it's not, it's not the people themselves. And, and I really love your point about remembering that these, that these are just things that we're finding that the people left behind, but what we're trying to do is study the people and learn about the people and to not lose sight of that, even though like really cool artifacts make you stop and your eyeballs pop out of your head. But you got to remember like what the, the point is. <laughs> right. So we're talking about cultures. And so, you know, my cultural anthropology colleagues, you know, they have an advantage. They can look at people. They, they can study their cultures directly. They can observe people doing what they do. So they can really talk about culture in a very tangible way. But as archaeologists, right? We can't observe cultures, I mean, until they invent that time machine, right, uh, <laughs> and to go back and look at these. And when they invent that, I'm going to be the first one on board so I can go back and see these things as, as they were actually done. So what is an archaeological culture and what do projectile points have to do with it, you know? So that's, mm -hmm. um, uh, I think that's where this framework of practice, these communities of practice, the practicing making points and certain traditions that are passed down. Uh, and the fact that we see, again, these what I think are some uh, different point styles that are roughly contemporaneous in, in North Carolina and look at the look at the distributions of these point styles on a big picture level that I think that's potentially informative about the geographic range of adaptations of certain communities in the past. Yeah, in, indeed. Indeed. So, well. Let's start shifting gears a little bit here. Um, in the last chapter of your book, or at least one of the last chapters of your book, you talk about working with avocational or, you know, some people call it amateur, but I think that term is is coming out of fashion. It's more avocational archaeologists and collectors. So can you tell us about the relationship that you have with uh, with collectors and, and how you feel about that enough to include this as a chapter in the book? Sure. Thanks for that. So I think that's a, a really one of the important parts of the book. And, and I should probably mention the book. I tried to write the book for both professionals and the public, the interested public. Mm -hmm. That's kind of challenging because they're some level, two different communities. Right. And so sure. uh, but uh, of course, as you all know, the, there's a there's a huge interest in archaeology by the public. And there are a lot of of, of avocationalists, uh, as, as you say, that are out there and they're, they have these collections, these artifact collections. Some are collections are legacy collections that their families have. They, they live on a, a farm and they're out, you know, plowing their fields and they can't help to see artifacts and collect them, pick them up. Um, mm -hmm. And so the, these are um, uh, people, uh, individuals who have a, a real curiosity about the past. And I've, uh, for decades, I've interacted with them uh, to varying degrees. And in fact, some of the photographs of some of the points in my book came from private collections. Oh, yeah. uh, you're not going to go, for example, to, uh, to a, a museum or university and get 30 pictures of fluted points in order to do Clovis points, you got to go out to the collector community to get those. And so this chapter look talks about my time working with collectors and trying to build bridges uh, between the professional and avocational communities. And of course, there's been a history of some tension between these two groups. I think that tension is 
is being bridged more and more in the last few years that Mm -hmm. uh, the Society for American Archaeology, for example, has um, created a a statement a few years ago. It's on the the SAA webpage, saa.org, that speaks to this issue of professionals and avocationalists working together. Mm -hmm. I I really uh, endorse that. My premise is that some collections, some private collections can have, have scientific value. And under the right circumstances, working with those private collections can enhance our understanding of the past. So th- this chapter kind of talks about my experiences and some of the challenges with that. There's ethical considerations. Mm-hmm. And so uh, let me, I'll just let me, I'll say this, too. So archaeology is one of those unusual professions in which one can claim to be an amateur archaeologist and nobody would think <laughs> twice about it. But you don't hear people saying they're amateur brain surgeons. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, There's no amateur, amateur lawyers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amateur physicists. Right. That, that just. And so, <laughs> you, you know, so that in part is sort of part of the of, of the issue here is that there's a lot of very knowledgeable collectors and avocationalists out there and they can do their part. I think you, we, you hear the term citizen scientist these mm-hmm. days and with respect to individuals helping biologists, bird watchers, mm-hmm. for example, uh, and uh, recording birds where they see them. The, there's, a, there's a lot more amateurs out there than there are professional archaeologists, right? And mm-hmm. so if we approach them in the right way and, and engage them, they can be what the Society of American Archaeologists called responsible and responsive uh, individuals. And they can contribute to the archaeological, to our knowledge by allowing archaeologists to record their collections. And we hope encourage them to ultimately donate their collections to a repository that uh, will uh, keep them forever. Right. And so, yeah, uh, one of the and so one of the things I often hear collectors say, well, you know, if I'm saving this artifact, you know, if I don't pick it up, it'll be lost. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. But here's the deal is that you know, nobody lives forever. So what happens to that collection once you die? Right. And mm-hmm. so the real, if you really want to be a, a responsible collector, you got to think about what the ultimate disposition of these collections are. If they're well provenienced, if that is, if, if the collectors need to record where the, these artifacts come from and write it down and share that information with professionals. And ultimately in the same way, what I tell my collector friends, you know, if you got a will and you want that important piece of furniture to go to, you know, your daughter or, or whoever, right. You write it mm-hmm. in the will. Right. But a lot of times the children in, in these families, some are not particularly interested in these collections. So what happens right. to these collections? And so they're lost forever. So under the right circumstances, I think uh, we can make some real contributions here by working with collectors in a productive way. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. Uh, and I'm curious, just just real quick here, when you first meet somebody who doesn't have a relationship with a professional archaeologist, they're a collector, they're an avocational archaeologist, and they say the typical things I see in like Facebook groups and stuff like that all the time where they're like, well, archaeologists are either steal your artifacts or just want to take them or, or in the worst case scenario, take your land because you say you found these on a site on your land, stuff like that. What, what's your response to somebody like that when they when you first approach them? How do you, uh, I guess, 
smooth that relationship over. Sure. Well, that's a very common. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a very common comment. And so what I say, I'm not the archaeology police. Um, uh, <laughs> I can't confiscate the artifacts. You know, I can't come on your land without your permission. Sure. So if it's if this is private property, right, if, and particularly if you own this piece of land and there's an archaeological site on it, you know, you're not going to be thrown in jail, right? But, <laughs> but because you've been collecting from your own property, right? It just, yeah. just not, won't happen. But I think the, the responsible th- thing to do, the, if you want to be a good steward of the land of the past, then work with an archaeologist, allow him to look at these artifacts. And, and frankly, I, I can't tell you how many times I get a phone call or an email or somebody says, you know, I've got this site or I got these artifacts and I'm, I'm glad to talk to them, but we're not rushing out and going to dig up everything. We just don't have mm-hmm. the time to, to, to do all that. Mm-hmm. But sure. we would like to know about the sites and we would like to get a sense of what might be there and show me some of the artifacts and we can maybe be, both of us benefit by uh, that kind of collaboration. So mm-hmm. speaking of tropes that, you know, the trope is that we're going to st- take your artifacts. No, that's not happening. <laughs> now I will say this, you don't want to go collecting on public property, right? State and federal right. lands. That is a violation of the law and that can get you thrown in jail. Right. <laughs> so Indeed. there's a difference between we recognize private and public property. So as long as you're not breaking any laws, then you're okay. But so don't um, uh, just be open. If if I was a private, if I'm, if I'm talking to these collectors, I just say be open to talking with professionals and mm-hmm. sharing what you found, and uh, we can have a productive relationship. On the flip side of that, because I think there's a lot of a stigma among archaeologists against landowners who are collecting on their own property. So I think I really like your point of making sure that we include people like that in a conversation because then they feel included and they're more likely to, you know, be good stewards of the, of the land, like you said. So just one quick last question to that point though, is what kind of information can you gather from a collection of artifacts that's potentially out of context? Like, cause you said you can get some good information from that sometimes. So what kind of things would you be able to get from that potentially? Sure. Good question. Great question, Rachel. So here, here's the, here's the deal. So these are, you know, predominantly surface collected artifacts, say in plowed fields. And so the, the context can be from a particular field or maybe just even at a county level. But here's the Mm -hmm. deal. If you look at a lot of these, enough of these collections, that's the key. What, what collectors don't know is they're sampling, Right. And they, they may mm-hmm. only select from, from a few sites when a certain area. But you look at the sites uh, for those, uh, a, another collector and another collector. And then pretty soon you're getting the big picture that gives you a sense on the large scale about what's happening. So, for example, for, for many years now, I've been looking at, you know, Clovis points. That's kind of my you know, my favorite point type, right? These fluted points, they're very (laughs) rare. And so you're not going to dig up a fluted point very often. So I've been looking at these private collections. And so I've recorded uh, 275 fluted points all across the state. And so if you, if you plug those on, even if they only have a county level provenience, you know, just that point came from that county and most of them are far better provenience than that. But even if you just have a, have a, you know, there's a hundred counties in North Carolina, right? And if you put the number of fluted points 
in each of those counties, you begin to see a pattern here hmm. that you have to control for some kind of sampling, potential sampling biases. But nevertheless, you begin to see a pattern with respect to the distribution of fluted points. And so for one thing, the, the rhyolite that we've talked about earlier, that's the predominant raw material that fluted points are made of. And that, that those points travel great distances from the Piedmont down in the coastal plain, even down into South Carolina. My colleagues in South Carolina are recording those down in the Santee River. And so mm -hmm. this big picture scale, by using enough collections, you get this geographic bird's eye view uh, of the distribution of points in the landscape. That's just kind of one uh, uh, example of the of the information you can get. Very cool. Nice. I bet nice. you can probably get material distribution yeah. as well. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So yeah, we see differences in, in raw material across the area too. And again, so collectors are just looking within their fields or within their County, but you put enough of those together and that's, that's the key to getting some real useful information. All right. Very well, cool. one final question then. Uh, you've probably had some, you know, this came out in, I think you said February or March of uh, 2021 here. So you probably already had some good feedback from colleagues and other people in the area. What does the second edition look like? You've had some breathing room since it's published. Are you, <laughs> <laughs> are you already getting some ideas for how to update this? <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I tell you, well, this one took a lot of, a lot of time. And so uh, uh, I, I don't know about what the next edition might look like, um, uh, to be honest. And I'm going to leave that to somebody else. 50 years from now, they can write, you know, revisit Daniel's work in the same way I did Coe's. And in fact, right. if they do, I think that would be a good thing because that kind of uh, reinforces what I think is kind of the importance of Coe's work uh, uh, 50 years ago. Awesome. All right. Well, Dr. Daniel, thanks a lot for coming on and for the audience. Again, take a look at the show notes. We'll have a link to the book there if you want to go pick up a coffee, copy for yourself. So thanks again. And uh, when you get edition two work done, let me know. and We'll get you back on the show. <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. I really appreciate this. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.